All right, everybody, I'm going to make your way in and grab a seat. We can jump in to session uh, three of our marriage equipping class. And the title for this one is The Glory uh, Belongs to Another. Because as we've looked at these few weeks, number one, our lives belong to another. Number two, our marriages belong to another. And this week, the glory belongs to another. And those kind of being, you know, three principles or truths that are really vital to thinking biblically about marriage. Because if we really fight the idea that our lives are not our own, but bought with a price, if we really fight the idea that our marriages are not our own, but are given by God to be stewarded and enjoyed, but yet for His glory, and if we sort of resist the fact that the ultimate honor and worship and glory belongs to another, then I think quickly marriage becomes pretty miserable. And we'll, as we use that illustration, it'll be like taking a Ferrari and trying to use it as a submarine. And pretty quickly we realize, okay, it's just not what God gave marriage to do. And so this week we're just going to continue that theme uh, with this idea that the glory belongs to another. Let me uh, pray for us as we jump in. Father, we do ask that you would show us your glory. We ask that you would yeah, open our hearts to receive from your word just the beauty of Christ and the delight of Christ and, and how even our earthly marriages are more fully enjoyed when we see that the glory belongs to you and that the honor belongs to you, that so much of the blessing belongs to us, so much of the delight belongs to us, but that is magnified when we magnify you. And so we pray that you would impress that truth upon our hearts and lives. Free us with that truth, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I want to start with a couple sort of points of clarification from last week, things that sort of that we talked about a little bit that stirred up some questions from some of you. One was on the idea of singleness. Um, where we were talking about marriage last week is this picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is this very distinctive, sacred, unique display of the gospel. And sometimes that can stir up the thought, well, then does single, is singleness sort of subpar? To be single, does that mean you're kind of junior varsity in the church? And of course, the answer is, right, absolutely not. That in the way that, there is, that marriage displays the beauty of Christ and the church in distinctive ways... There's certainly ways in which singleness displays the glory of Christ in distinctive ways. Even just the fact that we're all made in the image of God. To where if we're single, we still reflect the image of God. If we've been redeemed by God's grace, we still reflect the glory of his grace. And just as importantly, even as someone who's unmarried in the church, you are united to a spiritual family. You are part of the body of Christ. And therefore, you do reflect something about the gospel, also in a distinctive way, by being part of the family of God. And so I think what we're trying to highlight, though, in this marriage class is just ways in which marriage distinctively reflects Christ in the church, how marriage is given as a gift from God to tell something about Christ in the church that everything else in creation doesn't, which is part of why when we get to the, the sexual union lesson, we're going to see that in sexual union, God has given something that is very much reserved for marriage because of what it does express about Christ in the church. Second point of clarification, you remember toward the end last week, we talked about kind of good marriages versus bad marriages, about the danger of trying to evaluate and rate marriages as good or bad based on our understanding of what's going on without necessarily understanding what God is trying to do through that marriage over time. The point of clarification is what that doesn't mean is there aren't such things as unhealthy versus healthy marriages. Marriages that are immature, patterns of sin, patterns of abusiveness, patterns of immorality, patterns of unfaithfulness, things that are wrong, things that are sinful, things that will wreck shop in your marriage. Things that we would point to and go, okay, that needs to change. And so I definitely want to make that point. But yet, also at the same time, make this point that we need to be careful about making sort of two buckets in the church of good marriages and bad marriages. 
based on whatever criteria we're choosing to use at a time. We go, okay, this is a good marriage, this is a bad marriage, without understanding, well, what is God trying to do in that marriage over time? We talked about how Hosea and Gomer is this example of, okay, this is not a marriage that we would want to encourage other couples to model. Like, follow that example. But at the same time, we want to be careful about just taking Hosea and Gomer and going, you know, it's just a bad marriage. When God set apart and told a particular story through their marriage that was really important. And therefore, it served the purpose for which God designed it. And so we certainly want to understand, okay, there is such a thing as marriage, and, and for all of us, aspects of our marriages that need to grow, that need to change, that need to mature, to be able to say, okay, these are unhealthy patterns. These are sinful patterns. This, this is what growth would look like in a marriage. While at the same time, not sort of creating this rating scale, this judgment scale in the church, where we just put everybody into this bucket or into that bucket. In the same way, we wouldn't want to say, well, this is a good Christian, that's a bad Christian. Because there's just so many factors that go into that. Well, what's God doing in their life? What is the Lord redeeming them from? Every believer has a different starting point. Every believer has a different set of circumstances that they're working through. And every believer, God is choosing to sanctify in his way, in his time for his purposes. And so I think that's the kind of space I want us as a church to be careful with when we think about marriage. As we sit down as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another, to help one another, to counsel one another, to receive counsel, that we can be honest about, okay, here's where we're struggling. Here's where we need help. Here are the things that we think need to change and grow. Without rendering judgment about good or bad, without knowing, okay, what is God actually doing over time? Because what we'll find is the ones that look the messiest sometimes, the ones that in the surgery room seem to have the most blood all over the place, are often the ones that God does some of the most glorious work in, the ones that God actually proves his patience, proves his power, proves his graciousness in a very unique way. So that as we're witnessing it, we're actually asking, okay, Lord, what, what are you doing here? Lord, help us to be patient with what you're trying to bring about. Help us to be faithful with what you've given us. Makes sense? Should I say all that? Because we do pray to be faithful as husbands and wives. We do strive to love and serve and honor our spouses with the strength the Lord supplies we want to help each other follow Jesus. We want to walk in his spirit. We want to apply his word to our lives. And this, by God's grace, will increase maturity in our marriages, increase enjoyment in our marriages. And yet, realizing this isn't exactly all in our control, that we don't get to control the thoughts and emotions and behaviors and trajectory of our spouses. And I'm sure you've all realized by now we don't just get to fix sin and selfishness and pride in our lives with the snap of a finger. I mean, just try it. Get up tomorrow and go, you know what, today I'm not going to be selfish. You know what, for the rest of my life I'm not going to be proud. I'm just going to be humble. You know what, from here on out I'm not going to sin anymore. And my spouse is going to love this. And you'll find you get like 30 minutes. You get like two hours. If you're paying attention. And we realize, wait a minute, change is hard. Like, being conformed to the image of Christ is hard. That's slow work. And so a lot of what we're praying for is not a quick fix and just all of a sudden your marriage is perfected, but trajectory. What road does he have you on? Are you trusting him more with each passing day? Are you being more submitted to his word with each passing day? Are you growing in love for your husband and wife? Are you growing in selflessness over this year, over next year, over the year after? Because that's the testimony of God's redeeming grace in our hearts and lives. It's not that, hey, look at Christians compared to the world, we're just so much better. 
when actually there's some non-Christians that look a lot better than we do. But rather, look at what we were and look at where God's taking us. Look at the transformation that God's bringing about over time. Which is why, whether it's our marriage or other marriages that are struggling, that are in a rough place, that are in a difficult place, shouldn't terrify us. Shouldn't bother us. Because what we're really after is, well, on what course are they trying to walk? What road does the Lord have them on? How do we sort of aim for the right destination and walk with the right person along the way? Which is why there's always hope where there's repentance, where there's faith, where there's God in it. There's always hope. Which sort of brings us to the point or the main idea for today that the glory of that process belongs to another. That is, the Lord created marriage, gave marriage, now helps our marriages in order to bring glory to himself. Toward the end, we're not supposed to look in the mirror and go, man, look how great I am. I'm so good at marriage. We're so good at marriage. I hope everybody sees this, can take stock of this. They really ought to invite us to conferences more often. I don't know about you, the longer Ruth and I are married, the less confident I feel going and speaking at conferences the more unsure of myself I feel. The more you see in the details how much of it is the grace of God, how much of it is the power of God, and how much of the glory belongs to him. We're edified in the process. We are blessed in the process. We receive so much good gifts and treasure in the process. But the glory, the praise, the worship, the honor belongs to God. So I want to begin with this question. What do you truly desire for your spouse if you're married? What do you truly desire for your spouse if you plan to be married someday, want to be married? Then what will you truly desire for your spouse? What are you really seeking for him, for her? What are you trying to help your husband or wife to see? What are you trying to help them believe? What are you trying to help them hear? What are you trying to help them do? Do you want them to see and hear the glory of Christ? Is that a mission in your marriage? Or the glory of you? Or some version of both? Can you please see the glory of Christ and me? like all at once. So I want you to, we're just going to take like 90 seconds right now. And if you have something to write with, I want you to write something down. Or if you have a phone and no way to take notes on your phone, get out your phone and take notes. And just sort of answer that question. What do you really desire for them? What do you want them to see and hear and believe? Do you want them to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Or your kingdom, your righteousness? Do you want them to hear the voice of Christ and delight in his words? Or your voice, your words? Is it your ambition to help your spouse make much of you or much of Christ? Just Those are all different ways of asking the same question. You probably know the right Christian answer, right? As I gave you those pairs of options, you kind of knew. So it will be really important not to write the right answer, but the true answer. And so when you think practically day to day about the content of your thoughts and your emotions, like here's another way to ask it, what really upsets you in marriage? What grieves you? What gets you sideways emotionally toward your mate? Is it when they fail to honor Jesus? 
fail to revere Christ or fail to honor you, fail to revere you? What tends to get you excited in marriage? Is it those moments when Christ is most cherished, most adored, most exalted, even in their heart, the heart of your spouse, where that's what excites you? And for most of us, it probably depends on the moment, right? We could say, well, what hour are we talking about? What day are we talking about? Like leaving the worship service on a Sunday morning, going to lunch and hearing them talk through just how they're encouraged by the time of singing and praying and preaching. And those are probably moments you're in the mood. You're like, yeah, this is great. And then by Monday morning, by Monday afternoon, it's just the grind of life starts setting in as just all the different responsibilities of life and marriage are setting in, of just all the tasks that are building up, all the racing around town, getting things done, all the little points of conflict start to bubble to the surface. That's when we tend to forget and lose sight. Often we miss the point. Often, whether we know it or not, our real aim, our real prayer and desire is for them to see our glory to see how great we are. And, or we may say to absolutely not see our lack of glory. To not see our failures. To not see our sinfulness. We could even tell ourselves, you know, God told her to respect me. We might tell ourselves that, you know, he said she's to submit. We might say, you know what, God told him to love me as Christ loved the church. And then the very way we use the passage violates the point of the passage. We don't even see it. The moment you're using the passage that way is the sign that we're missing the point of it and what God really wants us to see, which brings us back to that original question, what do we truly desire for our mates? What is God really wanting us to seek for them when we speak? when we listen, when we spend money, when we save money, when we bear children or teach our children, when we spend time together and deal with the joys of life and the sorrows and the differences and the desires and the preferences and the interests and everything else that fills our days, whose glory and honor and exaltation are we ultimately seeking? So this is where John 3 can be so wonderful for us. Turn there with me, if you would. John chapter 3, where John the Baptist's words in John 3, verses 25 through 30, should, number one, completely change our whole reason for existing and breathing. And by application, should affect every relationship in our lives, and especially our marriages. And here's, I think, the main point that we can see or draw from this section of Scripture. To show us someone whose heart is truly in love with Jesus Christ. That's one thing we're going to see from the, John the Baptist. Whose salvation and joy is Jesus Christ. Such that now his life ambition is to help others see and hear and enjoy and love and worship Jesus Christ. That's the main point, to show us someone whose heart is truly in love with Jesus Christ, whose salvation and joy is Jesus Christ, such that now his whole life ambition is to help others see, to help others hear, to help others worship and adore Jesus. And if he got married to a woman on earth, I don't think that ambition would have changed or should have changed. That would still be the goal. So let's jump in. John chapter 3, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And Jesus answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, 
but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bridegroom or the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So Jesus and his disciples are baptizing people in one place around the Jordan. And actually, we learn in John 4, 2 that Jesus actually wasn't doing all the baptizing, but rather his disciples were. But they were doing it there with him under his ministry. And so John the Baptist and his disciples are then baptizing people in another place. And a discussion, probably a dispute, this is probably a kind of an argument is going to arise between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. And in the context, I think probably what they're disputing is, okay, whose baptism is the real deal? Whose baptism really purifies? Whose baptism really sort of gets the job done? So this is going to be someone, a Jew, raising that question about which baptism is the right one, the better one, which one actually purifies people. And that Jew to which the passage refers here is probably sharing with John's disciples, hey, look how many people are going to Jesus over here. Looks like he's got the right one. And that's stirring up in John's disciples some insecurity, maybe even for John's sake. And they're thinking, oh, wow, good point. John's got fewer and fewer people coming to him. This Jesus has more and more people going to him. That seems like a problem. And so they bring that to John, thinking probably that it would bother John, thinking that John will hear this and think, oh, oh no, Our, this ministry is diminishing, like it's shrinking. That one's growing. What's amiss? So they're going to voice their concern to him. And his response is spectacular. He's going to give them six things that should absolutely reorient our lives. Six things that when we take this to heart in life, and especially in marriage, will change the way you see marriage, change the way you see your spouse and yourself, and most importantly, the point of it all, the ambition of it all, what ultimately our goal and aim should be. The first thing he's going to say is about grace, given him from heaven. You notice those words. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so John understands and embraces grace in ministry and in life. And we're to embrace grace in marriage. Whoever I am, whatever good I accomplish, is by the grace of God. The lavish generosity of God. Any good I speak in marriage, any good I do in marriage, any blessing I receive from marriage is the product of grace, not my works, not my greatness, not my worth. Whoever Jesus is, whatever good he does, even John, I think, is saying, is coming in the same way. Whatever ministry I have, John's saying, it comes from heaven. Whatever ministry he has comes from heaven. And so there's not one thing that is the product of how great I am or how great I'm not. John would probably say, use the gifts I've received for my own personal glory and ministry success is an abuse of the gifts. How dare I take what God has given and use it as a vehicle for my glory. That's what he's saying. It's like somebody showing up in front of you on the street and just handing you a billion dollars, and then you spending the next day telling people how rich you are, how much money you've made. No, no, it, it was all a gift. It's all stewardship. 
And so as they're coming to him and saying, look at the comparison. John, he just understands grace. He understands the generosity of God, that every single thing he has that's good comes from God. How dare he use it to exalt himself? John understood it all belonged to God. Both the gifts and the people were meant for service unto the Lord. And just how freeing that is for him. And we should see marriage in the same way, that whomever the Lord has given you as a spouse during your time on earth has come to you by the grace of God. I mean, to think about it, you didn't earn them. It felt like you did, just that perfect arrangement of dates that you orchestrated, the smooth conversations that you facilitated, the right timing of the proposal, the way you dressed, the cologne you wore, the perfume you put on, how you dressed up for this. You know, all might give the approval, of, hey, I won them over. And I think the Lord lets us sort of think some of that. And then in the end, he says, hey, by the way, I gave them to you as a gift. Because if I really actually let them see the whole picture ahead of time, this may not have worked out. And so even then, God wants to say, no, this is a gift of his grace. And whatever good we accomplish in our marriages is by the grace of God. So we never get to claim the honor for ourselves, the esteem, the praise. We never get to treat our spouse or marriage as if the Lord gave them to be vehicles sort of for our personal desires and appetites. Like, have you even ever said to yourself internally even in marriage, like, all I ever wanted here was a thank you? Subtle, right? What are we really saying? All I ever wanted was for them to see what a blessing I am to them. All I ever wanted was for them to notice what I did and give some, some esteem for that. Now, that doesn't mean that thanksgiving isn't good in marriage. It is. God commands us to be thankful. We're to be thankful for our spouse. He commands them to be thankful for us. But there's something that happens when now we turn that into a demand. All I ever wanted was a thank you. They never notice any of the good stuff I do. They only notice the bad. They never notice... And we don't see that inside that actually is a misunderstanding of grace. Meaning, are we bothered that they're not thankful for us, or are we concerned for them that they're just not thankful to God? See how those are two very different things. And the track that God's using John to try to get us on is the track of we should desire our spouses to be thankful for their sake, for God's glory's sake for their spiritual good. But he wants to see we don't actually need it because it's all of grace. And therefore, we can be thankful with whatever God gives us that enables us to serve whether we're thanked for it or not. That's why in like Colossians 3, when God's like, okay, when you serve, when you work at your job and what you do, work unto the Lord. Not as a, an eye-pleaser, not as a man-pleaser, but to God who sees the heart. And so in all of life, he's saying, yeah, don't labor so that people would see it and glory in that. Like, if that's the food that's motivating, then marriage will eat you alive. God will make sure of it. In fact, I'm convinced that often the Lord makes sure other people don't notice. Just to purify the motivation, just to help us realize it's of grace that every single good thing you're ever able to accomplish in your marriage is because of God's kindness toward you. Therefore, thank you or not, glory or not, people notice or not, just shouldn't matter. It could be nice, or it could be tempting. 
and God actually knows what we need. I don't know about you, but when people come up and like compliment you for the great things, compliment me for great things, you know, there's kind of that, no, stop it, seriously, don't. You know, we, on one hand, it's like, oh, come on, seriously, but then there's something in us, like, oh, this feels so good. And that can plant seeds that starts to reshape the reason we do things. For tomorrow, that sort of intoxication with human praise, well, that can set in in a marriage in a way that that's actually what we're after, that's what's compelling, and then when it doesn't come, the thanksgiving, the appreciation, the honor, the bitterness that can set in, the resentment that can start to set in, because we've missed what God's wanting us to see, what John wants us to see. It's all of grace. That's the second thing he's going to say. You yourselves bear me witness, verse 28, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He understands identity. He understands who he is and who he isn't. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one who deserves your affection and trust and worship. And so, John, he understands who he isn't. I'm not that one you're meant to worship like that. I'm not that one you're meant to follow. And who he is, I've been sent ahead of him. I'm just a forerunner, I'm a messenger, I'm a voice crying out to make the way of the Lord. Because here's who he's announcing. Listen to this. This is John 1.4. In him, meaning Christ, was life. Let's look that in a minute. Can that ever be said of any of us? In you is the life. Not life, but the life. John 1.7, Jesus is the light of the world, a world that dwells in darkness. John came to testify about him as the light so that all might believe through him, John 1.7. John 1.10, the world was made through him. John 1.12 and 13, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, to be born again. And to think it's by marriage to him that we become members of God's family. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Jesus Christ is eternal, John 1.15. That's why John says he existed before me, even though John the Baptist is older than he is on earth. He existed before me. From the fullness of Christ we receive, John 1.16, grace upon grace, the endless, immeasurable, undeserved favor and blessing of God comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus knows the Father intimately and explains the Father, John 1.18. Surely there are a few things in life we need more than the Father explained to us, the Father made known to us. The Father revealed to us and us introduced to him. Well, the Gospel of John says, yeah, Jesus does that. He explains the Father to us, reveals the Father to us, and brings us to him. John 1.27, Jesus is so holy, so righteous, so divine, that John felt unworthy to untie his sandal. For me to even touch his sandal. I'm not even worthy of that. Jesus, John 1, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, in the life of Christ, the righteousness of God will be satisfied. In the death of Christ, the justice and wrath of God will be satisfied. In his death, our sins will be washed away. Through his resurrection, we can be justified to, before God. John 1.33, Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit, not in water. John 1.34, Jesus is the Son of God. John 1, 1 and 2, he is God in the flesh. 
So this is who John the Baptist has been talking about. This is who he's been announcing. This is who John the Baptist came to introduce. This is the person that John the Baptist knew that he wasn't. Whatever I am, I'm not that. I've just come before him. So the last thing John wants is for people to fix their hopes on him. For people to to think his baptism is what purifies. He's like, man, there's another that's going to come baptizing. It ain't with water. It's with the Holy Spirit. The last thing John wants is people camping out at his campsite. Hanging around his words when Jesus is over there. So if it helps you just to wake up each morning, sometimes it helps me to stand in front of the mirror and just say to yourself, I'm not the Christ. Sometimes that helps. Next time you're about to enter into that argument with your spouse, just look in the mirror and say, okay, I'm not the Christ. We do have to be reminded that our words aren't the saving words, that our way isn't the way, the truth, and the life that our passions and desires, though they may be fine, they may be good, they're not preeminent. Yeah, the next time people exalt you, flatter you, otherwise want to give you glory, you can even just say, you know, thank you, but I'm not the Christ. There's someone else who deserves it, who's worthy of it. It's, it's the difference even if to think about the image of a, the difference between a black hole and, and our moon. You may know that the moon is covered in this sort of the, this substance called rigolith. It's very similar to what is put into mirrors, very similar kind of substance. And the surface of our moon is covered in it so that when the sun shines against the moon, it reflects the glory of the sun to the earth. That's why when you see a full moon on a certain day in a clear sky, you stop and you look. And you see the light and you go, wow, this is incredible. And we need to remember, yeah, we're not looking at the light of the moon. We're actually looking at the light of the sun being reflected through the moon, or from the moon. Whereas a black hole is this sort of, sort of thing, this phenomena in space-time that the gravity of it, is so intense and so great that it doesn't allow light to escape or be reflected. It absorbs it. It takes the glory of the sun and absorbs it. And what we want to be like in marriage is more like moons, not black holes, where we take the glory of Christ and we reflect it. We take the good that comes and we reflect it because the temptation of the flesh is to absorb it. It's yes, see me, hear me, honor me, exalt me, delight in me as the one who's worthy. Now, we never say it that way, right? It just comes out in everything we get mad about. It comes out in the hundred little subtle ways, the areas of our bitterness and resentment, the things that we're so zealous and passionate about. Third thing he's going to say, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And so John understands ownership, grace, identity, ownership. It's a remarkable statement that John understands and embraces whom the bride really is and to whom she belongs. That all those that are going out to Jesus in John's mind belong to him. They compose the bride. He's saying, they're not mine. They don't belong to me. He's like, woe is me if for a single moment I claim them as my own, as my trophy. So though John's disciples are going to express all this fear and concern about competition between Jesus and John, competing with Jesus Christ is the absolute last thing on John's mind. As if, yeah, I'm competing with him for the affections of the bride. 
when he knows, no, I'm preparing people for him. I'm sending people to him. And we should have the same ambition, right? Bring people to Christ and prepare them for an eternity with him. That should, we should have that same sense in our own marriages as, yes, we're united together as husband and wife for earthly life. We have become one flesh. We are part of a sacred union before God that is important and distinctive and to be preserved and enjoyed. And yet we're preparing one another for that marriage. Paul Tripp used to say, all earthly marriage is pre-marriage. And so it's realizing okay, the ultimate owner of all this is Jesus. So can you imagine being at a wedding, you're witnessing it, and right after the father of the bride brings her down to the front, presents her to the groom, to the bridegroom, the best man steps from line, grabs the bride, and plants a big old kiss right on her mouth. And then takes the next five minutes to try to convince her to run off with him. If you're sitting there in that congregation witnessing that, are you thinking, yeah, this is cool? Or are you like, oh my goodness, how many people would storm that stage? Would rip that guy, that best man, away from her? Would see this as the ultimate wrongdoing in what's going on? And yet we can do that. How often do we compete against Jesus Christ for the affections of those around us? Compete against Jesus Christ even for the ultimate affections of our spouse. We're not even really thinking about it. That they're owned by him, and are we helping him or her see that, trust that, believe that? How often do we distract them from Jesus Christ rather than help them see and hear Jesus Christ? How often do we bog them down with the worries of this life? Bog them down with things that have no ultimate value. Constantly thrust upon them and their, in their faces responsibilities and duties and things that Jesus isn't really interested in them fulfilling. Again, it doesn't mean you don't live daily life together. You have to. It doesn't mean there aren't plenty of responsibilities, but are, are we always seeing those as submitted to the ownership of Christ? In what way are these responsibilities, these things that we're wanting them to find important, how important are they to God? Great example, the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10 38 through 42, some of you know that story where Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house and he's sitting there in the living room teaching and Mary is at his feet just soaking in every word. And what's Martha doing? Right, she's scrambling around, getting out the chips, the salsa, made some killer guacamole. Here's the egg rolls, the sweet and sour sauce. Got the spread and she's just running around getting all, and looks over and there's Mary just like parked at the feet of Jesus. And she's just like, here we go. Left me to do all the work. And she's so convinced that what's on her mind is the right stuff, she just interrupts Jesus mid-devotional. This isn't just about Martha or Mary's priorities. It's about Jesus's. Hey, Jesus. And he's like, yes. Like he was right getting to it. And don't you care? that she's left me to do all the preparations by myself. And now Jesus could have just unloaded, but just in a very endearing way, Martha, Martha, what are the words you use? You're worried and bothered by many things. But Mary, she's chosen the good part, and that won't be taken from her. What Jesus isn't saying is, you know, egg rolls, just who cares? Chips and guac, irrelevant. The problem is, no, you're worried about it. You're bothered by it. You're distracted by it. If you want to put out some appetizers, great. Just don't be worried about it. 
do it with an ear to Christ. Do it to help others sit at his feet. If you're going to do it, then do it for my glory and that others would be better positioned to see and hear me. But when those priorities get exalted over Christ, now we distract everyone from the main dish. And we don't even know it. Because here's Martha, of course, she thinks, right, she's serving Jesus. Like Jesus is in her house. She's putting on this killer meal. It's just for her, it's moved to a position of worry, bother, distraction, such that Jesus mid-sentence is less important than everybody getting on board with what I'm doing over here for Christ. And so in this very endearing way, Jesus is going to rearrange those priorities. That Martha, this is the important thing, that people hear me, that people see me, that people worship me, that people trust me and believe in me. They might not eat another egg roll the rest of their life. They'll be okay. You might not go to another Bible study the rest of your life where there's any snacks or refreshments. You might come to church service next week and on, and there not be another drop of coffee ever. I know some of you, your heart just skipped a beat for a moment. Like, <gasps> right? There is that sense in which we can get worried and distracted, bothered. It doesn't make it wrong to have those things. We just, we always need God's help keeping it in perspective. And that's how marriage is. There'll be all these things that you're about in marriage, different gatherings you're going to host and different meals you're going to do and kids you got to school and whatever way you're going to school them and food to put on the table and clothing to buy and cars to take care of and jobs to work and neighborhood this and schools this and all these different things. It's just are we able to walk in those things as husband and wife with Christ in the very middle, with him being the point, such that if any of this ever gets in the way of that, this goes. Or is all this drowning him out? And we don't even see. Any questions, comments, thoughts before we keep going? Yeah, and, it's, and I think each of us should be able to go say what you just said. Like, there's a Martha in all of us. It's just, what, what's your list of appetizer items that you get all Martha-y about? And then hopefully in Christ, for, there's, a little, there's Mary in all of us. So in some ways, what he's contrasting with two different people, he's also sort of contrasting in each of us. In any given thing that my Martha takes over, because that's the thing I think is so vital that even Jesus should submit to it. And I'm even going to try to use Jesus to make it work. And so that, then our prayers can become that. Hey, Jesus, don't you care how messy my house is? And he's like, no. Well, you ought to. And you ought to get the people around me on board with what I know is the most holy way to have a house look. Just don't, don't you care that my kids keep eating food like on the couch? Like make them stop <laughs> for the love of all things holy. You know? Don't you care they don't hang up their towels? Don't you care that when it's my birthday, my spouse doesn't this or does this? Don't you care that and things that, again, they're not it's not that you don't like those things, but we just have to hold them like this. And we have to be ready for the Lord to say, it's just not important. 
next to me. And we never know what that's going to be around. And what the Lord will usually do is give you a spouse that is so unbelievably not committed to what's so important to you. It's almost uncanny. Like you really thought during the dating process that would have been clarified. Certainly engagement. Like surely they got the picture in engagement. What a big deal. Not a big deal to me, a big deal, period. Because we usually don't say, hey, this is really important to me. No, we just say it's important. As if straight from heaven. And we don't realize that when we have a list of all those things, we don't realize usually what that list is till you get married. You don't realize what law you have actually enacted in your kingdom till somebody moves into your kingdom that has a different set of laws and isn't interested in your laws or just didn't think they were that important. And then there's what you could call a clash of kingdoms. His kingdom, her kingdom, clashing, colliding. And God uses that horizontal earthly skirmish to show that both these kingdoms are actually clashing with his. That neither of these kingdoms are exactly submitted to his. And he'll just use the earthly kingdom skirmish to reveal it. And that's what he's getting at with Martha even. You don't even know how much your kingdom is not exactly submitted to mine until you're in a room with your sister and I'm there. And now you're going to see it. Now it's going to come out. But he also understands beauty. John says he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He rejoices in the voice of Jesus Christ, not his own. That everything John's going to say in this passage flows from genuine faith in Jesus. Genuine delight in Jesus. It's not an act. It's not just, hey, I know I'm supposed to say this. No, he really prefers the voice of Christ over his own. I'd rather hear Jesus talk than me talk. And I think I want my spouse to hear Jesus talk more than he hears me, they hear me talk. I want his word to have greater weight in his or her life than my word. And I want my word to be as close to this word as it possibly can be. So that I'm not creating for my spouse a situation where they're having to go, do I hear Jesus or hear them? Do I honor Christ or do I honor them? Because my sin muffles Ruth hearing Christ's voice. That's part of the problem with it. My selfishness clouds her view of his beauty. When I sin against her, dwell upon the worries of this life, or feed her just a steady dose of modern media rather than God's word, I'm just sort of throwing mud on the windshield of her soul, making it very hard to see the one she's meant to see. Not impossible, because the Spirit can still work through the word in her life. I'm just making it harder. It's like if you're driving in a car with a five-year-old who's throwing a temper tantrum, I don't care where, you could be driving along the coast of Hawaii, you won't care. You won't even necessarily see, you won't go, wow, how beautiful. It's just all you hear is the screaming. And so we can do that sometimes in marriage where we're so forceful with the way we want it to be that we don't even know how that's muffling what God has to say. John understands true beauty and joy, and he wants other people to understand true beauty and joy. Fifthly, joy. He says, this joy of mine is now complete. Namely, John rejoices at the exaltation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the news that his disciples bring to him about all who are going to Jesus did not in the least discourage or disappoint John. On the contrary, as a surprise to his followers, probably it made his day. This was music to his ears. They're saying, hey, John, everybody's leaving you and going to Jesus, and they think that's going to disappoint John. 
He's going, oh man, we better change the way we're doing this baptism thing. Oh wow, okay, we need to get more promotional materials out. We need to get some killer ads. Let's everybody hit their social media feeds. We got to move it back this direction. Now they don't know, they're making his day. That's good news to John. This joy of mine is now complete. What's that joy for, to get other people to Jesus? To get other people attached to Jesus, other people trusting Jesus, following Jesus, enjoying Jesus. That, for him, is complete joy. We have to ask ourselves, is that my joy in marriage? Is that what completes my joy? Is that what I celebrate and delight in? John's joy increases when glory given to Jesus Christ increases. And oh, how happy is the soul where that is true. Where our joy increases when glory given to Jesus increases. Where that's what we live for. Oh, how that frees us from the suffocating disappointment of people not seeing our own glory. How free it is when we just don't care about that. Yeah, leave me, follow him. Don't worry about my glory, his glory. And the more glory is given to him, the more excited we become. And then finally, the conclusion, he must increase, but I must decrease, or ambition. That really is the punchline of the passage, the inevitable conclusion to everything that he has said. He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. Less of me, more of him. That's what the world needs. That's what my household needs. That's what my marriage really need. More of his kingdom, less of my kingdom. More of his will, less of my will. More of my energy and passion spent focused on him, talking about him, delighting in him, displaying him, helping others find their hope in him. Less energy and passion thinking about me. Less energy and passion laboring for me. Less energy and passion worried about me, how I look, how I feel, what I get. More energy, more passion devoted to him. And so I think in our marriage, yeah, we want to be important to one another. We want to value one another. We're, we're called to love each other. To see the interests of the other is more important than ourselves. And we do want them to be kind to us, appreciative toward us, encouraging toward us. But all of it submitted to the ultimate importance, the ultimate value. So that any given day, any given month, any given year, no matter what's happening in the circumstances of marriage, we can always have as our aim, he increases. I must decrease. So I'm going to pray to close us, but what I'd love for you all to do is maybe just divide up into groups of four or five or six and just take the next five to ten minutes before, you know, we've got to move over to the main hall and just, yeah, share what parts of what we've talked about this morning for you are you praying, yeah, that's what I want to see happen more in my heart and life? That's, that's an area right there that I, I'm just going to ask that God would change in me. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll just take the next five to ten minutes and just divide into groups of four to six and just talk through. There's also discussion questions. You're not going to have any time to get through all those, but if you get stuck for what to talk about as a group and just want to take one of those, then feel free to do it. So let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that this passage is here. We pray that you would help us to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. That our joy would be made complete by Jesus' exaltation. That it would be our ambition to decrease, that he would increase. That we would know who we are. We're not the Christ, but we've come before him to talk about him, to announce him. We would understand what real beauty is, Jesus, 
We would want to hear his voice and make sure his voice is heard in our homes. So help us in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, divide up into groups and take the next little bit to share some of that.